You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we're actually kind of getting back out of the Psalms. We wrapped up Psalm 51 last week, um, apparently. Um, I've slept since then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, I, yeah, I can't wait to listen to that. I still haven't got it fully edited yet, so I'll remember once I, once I do the editing, um, we'll get it all together. <laughs> so now we're going back to 2 Samuel, and what chapter did we are we landing in right now? We we're finishing up chapter um i've got it in front of me 12 okay. i was gonna so, say that but i wasn't yeah. sure because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been there <laughs> well it's kind of been just i was kind of grateful for the break because in samuel you go straight from david and bathsheba to amnon and tamar and you've just got these back-to-back horrible stories and it doesn't get any better after that. So, you know, you, by throwing that psalm in there, we at least kind of get to take a little bit of a break from all of the violence and the cruelty of the ancient mm-hmm. world. And uh, I think I think I needed that. I don't know if our listeners needed that, but I needed that. So, um, yeah, we're going to pick up in verse 26 in chapter 13. Now, this little section here is picked up by uh, Chronicles. It's the last point of connection we have between Samuel and Chronicles until I think it's let's see yeah second Samuel 21 18 is whenever Chronicles will pick up with it and it kind of makes sense because the writer of Chronicles remember he doesn't include the story of David and Bathsheba Mm -hmm. and everything that happens in second Samuel until chapter 21 are is the consequences of David and Bathsheba so you've got these these consequences which are horrible but since the writer doesn't give you the reason for the consequences in Chronicles, he doesn't give you the consequences. And, um, you know, there's a few slight discrepancies. We will talk about um, what they are. They, they aren't anything uh, major. But for the most part, they really are word-for-word uh, replication. So the writer of Chronicles, once again, demonstrates he definitely had access to the book of Samuel when right. he was writing and the, the choice to leave those out, what these stories of David and Bathsheba and, and Tamar and Amnon were intentional on his part. So in verse 26, um, we're told that Joab has taken the city of the Ammonites, the royal city of the Ammonites. This is Rabbah. And in verse 27, we're told that he sends David messengers uh, with the news. Hey, you, you need to get here. So in verse 28, we have what the messengers say. It says, now gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So Joab's saying, if I capture it, if I make the final push, then people are going to say that the city is mine and and I'm going to get all the credit. And that's the verse that Chronicles leaves out. Now, Alter suggests a reason for this. He actually says that basically Joab is making a little jab at David and he's, he's saying, you know, I did all the work. Now it's time for you to get out here and take the credit for it. Now, 
uh, Arbanel, uh, which is one of the medieval rabbis, he actually says that Joab's being appropriately humble. And he's saying, I'm not going to take credit for, for this conquest because you're king and you deserve it. So we have these two very different readings of the same mm -hmm. text. And how you interpret that is really going to boil down to how you view Joab. The thing is, we don't have all of our facts yet about Joab. So I'm going to withhold my judgment on how you should read this passage until we get further into Joab's story, because so far he's been kind of a questionable character, but he's been questionable for the right reasons, if that makes sense. Because we have to remember, he's the one who killed Abner back at the beginning of 2 Samuel, and he killed Abner because Abner had been loyal to Saul's son rather than being loyal to David. And David did not appreciate this much at all, even though Joab saw this as the right and correct thing to do within the political mm -hmm. structure. So, you know, trying to come to terms with who Joab is, it is difficult. And I think it would be really interesting just to do a study on him, a really in-depth study on him. He would actually probably make a far more interesting Bible movie than a lot of the characters that we do make Bible movies on just because he is, he's so conflicted. Right. And I like that about him. I, I, I I'm kind of drawn to those complex, uh, ambiguous, uh, characters in most stories. And this is definitely one of those people. Um, so verse 29, David does this. He, he does what Joab asked. He gathers the people and he takes the city. And in verse 30, it says, and he took the crown from their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in the it was set was, and in it was precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, and he brought out all the spoil of the city. It was a very great amount. So the point of this verse is the treasures of Rabbah are immense. They're they're just literally they're gigantic, um, and this is notably displayed with the size of the crown. A talent is about 72 to 75 pounds. Some people say it can be up to, to 100 pounds. It kind of depends on who you're reading. But even at 72 to 75 pounds, that's still a significant weight to wear on your head. Right. And the, yeah, the problem then becomes, can any human being actually wear a crown of this size? Now, Zamora says it's no problem. We've got uh, lots of uh, artifacts and depictions in... Uh, different uh, digs where we found, you know, like Egyptians wearing these massive headpieces. And this was common at that time. However, the weight did cause enough concern with the rabbis that they developed these more creative solutions. Uh, some say that it was suspended over David's head by some kind of mechanical device, maybe even magnets. And uh, the, but, another explanation is maybe it was... But gold's not uh, magnetic. So right. That that one's done. So, well, it, it, well, did it say it was a, a gold crown? Oh, I I'm trying to remember. remember. This has been yeah, it worth it. Well, sorry, the weight of it was a talent of gold. That's, so that's, yeah, yeah, you're I right. I thought I heard gold in there somewhere. It has been a crazy week, and trying to to stay on track has been <laughs> has been a a challenge, but. The, the other solution is that it was worth a talent of gold, which can be done if you're talking about metalwork set with, with stones, with precious stones, um, that it would be worth more than the weight of the gold. Now, well, the, the, if David the problem has I have a, there is it says the weight ahead. of which. 
it doesn't <laughs> right. say the value of. So anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and that's the thing. I mean, it, it's like, how much do we read into it to make it make more sense? Now, and how do we there not, are some how do we not obvious... do it just like not hyperbole? You know, like like it probably weighed half a million right. pounds. The thing was huge. You know, kind of deal. <laughs> I, well, and that's it. I mean, think, people still talk like people, even back at this point in time. So if you want to make a point, then yeah, you, 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 you overstate it. You use that hyperbolic language. But if we believe that the Bible is telling us, you know, the, the actual facts, we do have a little bit of a situation. And not only do we have a situation with David wearing it, if it's the crown of the Ammonite king, then why in the world was he able to wear it? And if he was able to wear it, then why would we think David would have a problem wearing it? I think I have a little bit of a solution, but we're going to have to go around a few uh, rabbit trails and a couple of barns that belong to Katie. So um, the, the Septuagint just... Um, offers a solution by saying that it doesn't belong to the king. It belongs to uh, their god, Melchom. And the consonants of their king and Melchom are the same in Hebrew. And since ancient Hebrew wasn't written with vowels, we don't know which word it was. Because you can take consonants in the same order if you do it with English. There's a really great uh, uh, example online that uh, I'll share. That if you do this in English, you take out all the vowels, just leave the consonants. They can make several different words in English without violating any kind of grammatical world, or, uh, rules. So uh, this example actually has the consonants for something that says either God is now here or God is nowhere or God's son we now hear. So, you know, there, these all these different words that can be made from these these consonants this is why the torah is taught and, and it still is taught by by speaking mm -hmm. you, you're taught how to sing it you're taught how to say it you're taught the proper vocalizations because if you're just going by the consonants and you don't have those vowel sounds you can make many different words but this is the beauty of that oral tradition still being built into the preservation of mm -hmm. the text. And we've got to remember most of these societies, for so long, an oral tradition was all they have. So now you've got the question, is the uh, Septuagint preserving a vocalization that the and translators were familiar with, or are they trying to smooth out a problem with the text? And that's... That's the big question, because if it's trying to smooth out a problem with the, uh, with the text, they might actually be creating more problems by saying that David took this crown that belonged to an idol or a pagan god and put it on his head. But um, we do have Malcolm identified as the god of the Ammonites, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1 Kings 11.5 and in 11.33. And we've got to remember, First Kings is still part of the book of Samuel, and we should expect some consistency within the writing. And, you know, the thing is, a giant crown should not surprise us because we forget that there's so many details within the story to let us know why a giant crown would be 
expected in this region in this region. So if you go back to Deuteronomy 2, 18 through 21, we find out that God has given the land of the Rephaim to the Ammonites and that he actually drove the Rephaim out in front of the Ammonites and gave this particular piece of land to Ammon, the, the son of Lot. And we're told that the Rephaim are a giant people as tall as the Anakim. Mm-hmm. Rabbah, in particular, is an Ammonite city. It's the capital. It's where King Og ruled. Now, we're familiar with King Og from Deuteronomy 3, where we're told about the size of his bed. And we know that King Og was a remnant of the Rephaim who were still ruling at the time of Moses. So even though the Ammonites had, quote unquote, driven the Rephaim out, there's still a remnant in the land. And not only are they still there, they're ruling in the land at the time of Moses. So the idea that their king, their Rephaim king, would have a giant crown, well, this makes total sense now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Hog's got this great big bed, why would we expect him uh, to have a tiny crown? Now, the um, king of the Ammonites in 2 Samuel is Hanun, son of Nakash. And, you know, we have some pretty strong circumstantial evidence that maybe based on the names, you know, son of Nakash, which harkens back to Genesis 3, we're talking about the serpent in the garden, a fallen angel. Now we we can say that he very well could be one of those of the remnants of the Rephaim. Even if he wasn't, just like David goes into the city of Rabbah and takes the crown of King Og, his family, if they had come in and conquered the Rephaim rulers, they would have done the same thing that David is doing now. So ultimately, the mechanics don't really matter. Because, you know, David's going to wear the crown. He could have had two guys standing on either side, you know, holding the crown above his head and say, look at me, I've got the crown. The point is that David displaces the son of Nakash to rule in his place and to reign over the city. And so this is blatant foreshadowing of what is accomplished in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Because David, we remember He's God's anointed. He's the Messiah. He's the king ruling in God's place. So David is accomplishing physically what Jesus is going to accomplish across the board. And we can see that in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. John 12.32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So we know that Jesus, he accomplishes this, which is good news for us. And David specifically doesn't destroy the Ammonites. Now, um, again, not something that should surprise us, because if we go back to Deuteronomy 2... I actually actually have uh, an idea on this, and it's not serious at all, so don't quote me. I'm just still waking up and being goofy. (laughs) If it was like this oversized crown for some massive idol, could could you imagine, uh, like, you know, we've known military guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are they going to do? They're oh, going to yeah. take it off. They're going to hold it over their head and be like, hey, look at this. You know, mm-hmm. like, and they just didn't have a camera for the forced perspective shot. There you go. And so, I, so I you mean, know, I mean, that that's a possibility, too. <laughs> very much so. And I think, that, you know, sometimes when we over spiritualize these these 
stories to the point that we forget the humanity at play. We overlook simple solutions like that. But but even yeah. even if he did it as a joke, you still, I mean, it's in the story and you can't overlook, there is some symbolism there, at which part of exactly. that would have been him just making fun of the, the, the other god. Which we know God does. I mean, you go to, uh, you know, we're going to get to Elijah at some point in his speech against the prophets of Baal, which is probably the biggest example, the best example of trash talk against another god. And um, so, I mean, it did happen. And these people are very human and they had human responses. And I don't know why this shocks people. But um, back to the Ammonites and why David didn't Because why would them. God write a book about humans doing human things? That's a really good question. It might be so that we can figure out as human beings how to serve God correctly by... Going, you don't do this. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny. You know, God made the human race, but we're shocked when he, you know, records us accurately in his book. But anyhow, we should move on. <laughs> you saw that door open and me start to step <laughs> through. So the Ammonites uh, were not destroyed. They're not part of the seven nations that were set apart for Ram or destruction. The Ammonites are family. They're badly behaved family. They do things that God doesn't approve of, that, that there's reasons for discipline, but they're still family. And family gets disciplined. They don't get destroyed. And the thing is, what David has to do is he has to enact a discipline that's, that's strong enough and severe enough to make sure that the other surrounding nations don't make the mistake of thinking that they can you know, come in and undo what David has done. And so he's got to kind of put that fear of God into all of his surrounding um, enemies. And so David institutes a, a corvée labor is pretty much what it is. And this is kind of an unpaid labor that the citizens of the land will participate in as kind of a, a taxation without money actually exchanging hand. Uh, in verse 31, we're told, and he brought out the people who were in it and set the, in it was uh, referring to Rabbah. And set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil in the brick kiln. And then he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now, there's room for speculation in, in this particular verse. Uh, were they helping build fortifications? Were they helping tear down the fortified walls of their city? Uh, you know, we really aren't told there's... The, the working in the kilns seems to indicate that there was some kind of building pro, uh, project going on. And we should expect that. I mean, David's a new king over a new kingdom, and he's, he's building these new cities. He's building outposts. So definitely the idea of having you know, foreigners make bricks to, to build these fortifications was pretty common. Uh, we're very familiar with it, especially looking back at Exodus. Right. But also the idea of having them tear down the walls of their own fortified cities so that they would not be able to defend themselves should David have to come back in and get everybody back in line would have been very much in keeping. Now, Radic and Ralbug, the, the two, uh, two of the rabbis from the Middle Ages, again, that we've referenced before, they claimed that David used these tools, these iron axes and iron picks, to actually torture the Ammonites. And then ultimately they he burned them alive in the kiln. I, I think that such a reading would 
go beyond the text, what's actually there, which, you know, isn't uncommon with the rabbis. They like to add some drama when it feels a little dry to them. They want to make sure that their Jewish leaders are are just bigger than life and they get they're so over the top. But I think if you just stick with what's on the page, you have this very interesting and concise picture of David honoring both the covenant that God says he made with the Ammonites in Deuteronomy 2, but also still walking in the covenant God has with Israel. And I I still find that very interesting that we have this idea of God making covenants and making promises to these other nations and giving them allotments of land, just like he did Israel, because we never talk about that. I mean, that is just not something in the Bible that we bring up that often. And for me, I, I want more information on what was the purpose behind this. And so one one day I'm going to like break down what's going on fully there and, and see what information I can find. We'll have to see what I can dig up. But the uh, we've wrap up that that chapter and we're going to get ready to go into chapter um 13 and this is another hard story uh and so at this point i'm going to pause and just do a a little bit of a, a warning we are going to be talking about sexual violence and rape again so if you're listening with the kiddos you might use some discretion on this uh we're going to be here for a little bit. Not, I don't think we're going to be in this story as long as we were with David and Bathsheba, but we're going to still have some, um, some time here because we've talked about how the writer of Samuel, he's so good at going back to previous stories, going back to Genesis, going back to Exodus, going back to Deuteronomy, pulling out these threads and bringing them all together within one story. And man, in chapter 13, he pulls out all the stops. He weaves together threads from at least 10 different stories in this one chapter. So there is a lot of meat here. And this is where if you haven't checked out some of our episodes over Dina and Shechem and Judah and Tamar and the um, series in Judges, you probably are just going to need to go back and listen to some of those episodes. Otherwise I'm going to be repeating a lot of information that we've already gone over. I am going to, I'm going to try to hit some of the high points where it's uh, appropriate and significant, but to get the full uh, picture, you're going to want to go back. So um, some of the stories he pulls from David and Bathsheba. I mean, so that one's easy. He wrote that story so we can understand him pulling from that one. Judah and Tamar which obvious, you know, it's pretty obvious whenever we begin looking at the story is about another woman named Tamar. Dina and Shechem, Abigail and Nabal, uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Jephthah and Abimelech, the Levites and the golden calf, the Levites and the concubine, uh, the Levite and his concubine, Ruth and Boaz, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and I'm sure if I was smarter, I would see more. Now, obviously, some of these connections are more important than others. Uh, some of them are very tenuous because they're just lexical uh, connections. In other words, we have the same word or the same phrase, but they aren't uh, super in-depth. Others 
provide the construct and framework that the writer's going to build his story around. And some are completely reversed. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to spend some time. It's <laughs> basically what I'm, I'm warning you. We're going to spend some time on this. Um, and I, I do have to say that when we're talking about the issue of how inspired is the Bible, these are the sorts of things that make me go, it has to be inspired. As someone who does a lot of writing, I can see a very skilled writer going back and pulling on three or four stories to put this together. Maybe if they're super talented, five or six, but to weave in this many uh, is really difficult and requires a high level of skill that most writers just don't have. Even good writers don't have this kind of skill. And we should also remember that at the point that Samuel's being written, one of the things that critics often question is, did they have the Torah? Mm -hmm. Did the writer have access to this book? And part of that is to say, well, see, there, there's no continuity. There was some kind of loss there that they wouldn't have had the Torah. They wouldn't have known the rules. And so they must have made up the Torah later. Well, if that's the case, then where did this writer get this level of detail? Because even with just the Joseph and the Potiphar's wife story, the, the way it's woven together, he either had to have had the story in pretty much the same format that we do, or God supernaturally revealed to him how we were going to get it. So even asking the question winds up elevating the level of scripture even beyond what somebody who says, oh yeah, they've had copies of this around, or they've had the oral tradition around since the time of Moses. And it's kind of funny to me that it winds up doing exactly the opposite of what they intend uh, for it to do. But um, anyway, um, I just realized I walked walked past, past a few pages of my notes. So again, what follows is the consequences of David's actions with Bathsheba. It's going to be harsh. And um, we're going to pick up in verse one. It says, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's, David's son, loved her. So the first thing we should notice is the very specific way in which the writer identifies our three main characters. Absalom and Amnon are David's son. Tamar is Absalom's sister. And if we remember back to David and Bathsheba, the way that a woman is identified, you know, which man is she associated with is significant because throughout Bathsheba's story, she's identified as the wife of Uriah. Mm -hmm. It isn't till the very last that she becomes David's wife. Matter of fact, in the genealogy in Matthew, we're told that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. So right away, we, we were alerted. There's something kind of funny going on with Tamar's relationship to her dad. The fact that she is specifically noted as Absalom's sister, not David's daughter, it should set us on edge a little bit. now. Overwhelmingly, Bible commentators agree that she is 100% uh, David's daughter, but this is not a completely unanimous reading. Some of the rabbis point to the fact that this is 
that statement is never directly made as a reason to say that she's not David's daughter. Now, the reason why they're trying to do that is because later on in the story, uh, she makes a statement that she could marry her brother, which we know, according to Torah, that incest is forbidden. And so this would not be a uh, a law that would allow, this would not be something allowed under the law. And even in First Chronicles 2.9, where we have a, uh, a list of David's descendants, we have a list of David's sons, and then we're told that Tamar is their sister, not that she's David's daughter. Now, by making that little correction and, and giving us that out, that, okay, maybe she's not David's daughter, she's Absalom's sister, uh, because Absalom's mother was married to somebody else and they had a kid together, so she's Absalom's half-sister. Uh, we we kind of smooth out one problem with the incest question. The, the problem is um, it doesn't fit with the rest of the story. Right. But the point of all of this is not whether or not she's biologically related to David. And we're going to show how the text actually demonstrates that in just a minute. But um, the point is she's under David's care because at one point David sends to his house to have her brought out. So David has, has her in his house and she's under his care. The text is very specific um, to that. So we're also given two explicit details about Tamar. One is that she's very beautiful. Now, this is not Tov like in Genesis 6 or Genesis 3. This is um, Yaffa, which is an explicit reference to her, her looks. It's, it's her outer beauty. It's what you can see with your eye. It is the word that Abraham uses when he and Sarah go to Egypt. I know that you're a beautiful woman. And this is why they're going to kill me to, to get to you. It's the word used of Rachel. It's the word used of Joseph in Potiphar's house. We're um, told that David is Yaffa. So that's the first thing we know about her. Um, remember, Bathsheba even isn't described as Yaffa. We're told that she's Tove. She's good. And so there, there's a little distinction. And the distinction here isn't necessarily about her as a person. It's how she's being perceived by the others in the story. So Amnon loves her. Uh, typical word used of love. Uh, we're, we're not um, surprised. This is the word that's used between a husband and a wife, between uh, father and son, men and God, God and men. And so this is not some other word it is the word for love that we find repeated over and over again and this is going to be important now there is one implicit detail and um that's her name tamar because if we remember back the original tamar is david's great 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 times six grandmother and she is involved in probably the most scandalous story within the bible when it comes to sexual abuse and so we sh we should be preparing ourselves for what's getting ready to happen so verse two and amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister tamar for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to amnon to do anything to her so here's the first indication that tamar is definitely david's daughter 
Uh, she is Amnon's sister too, not just Absalom's sister. Amnon and Absalom have two different mothers. So in order for them to be brothers, or in for the order for Tamar to be their sister, they have to have the same father. So uh, we know that again from First Chronicles 2. And I want to point out um, one thing in this, because when we have those, those explanations that try to try to solve problems within the text, like, oh, well, she wasn't really Amnon's sister. She was just Absalom's uh, sister. We actually wind up creating uh, more problems. But it also shows us that many of the times people who come up with these solutions aren't reading the totality of the story. They aren't reading the full narrative. They're just picking out a couple of little proof texts here and there. And a lot of times their traditional reading is the traditional reading because it's correct. So don't be quick to throw out a traditional reading for some newer, fancy, brighter, shinier reading. Too often, that's going to lead you astray. You need to go back to what the traditional reading was, and you know, and occasionally traditional readings aren't always right. We know that. I think I think we've but demonstrated that we... a few times on the show. Yeah, uh, it, well, and this is why we have to vet everything that somebody says about the Bible. We have to take it right back to Scripture. We need to be diligent about this. We cannot be lazy about it. We we need to be studying for ourselves, so we make sure that we're following teachers who are respecting the text. And not elevating tradition above the text, but also not disregarding what tradition might have to teach us. So yeah, find that balance, and it's it's the separating the you know, separating the wheat from the chaff, if you will. You know, rightly dividing the word of truth, maybe. You know those types of things, and and even us check out what we're saying, verify. I mean, don't take us. I mean, <laughs> I'm definitely none of the expert in it. Emily is a heck of a researcher, but that doesn't mean that she knows every like single detail. I mean, she's relying on other scholars and, mm-hmm. and a bunch of work that that's come before her. So, you know, check, check out what we're doing. If you have questions about it, ask us if you have information that seems contradictory to where our conclusions feel free to present it. We'll take it into consideration. I mean, we're not, yeah. So I just want to make sure everyone knows we're not exempting ourselves from that. Uh, from that statement right. <laughs> because I I don't you know what I'm glad to have the conversation and explore the possibilities and then I kind of mm-hmm. land on where I think things are or I kind of see what I'm comfortable with accepting or or, or I just kind of throw it up in the air and go well I know the important parts and <laughs> I'll just have to leave the rest up to God at times and so you know but as to far as as far as you know, making us some kind of you know gurus or whatever don't don't do that i i'm smart enough to be able to to know i need other smart people Uh, and that's kind of where i i kind of fall on it and the thing is when you read a lot of diverse opinions and you begin to look at the various sides of the different arguments you do begin to form your own opinions but they aren't original I mean, we go back to Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. I guarantee you that's the case uh, nine times out of ten with with Bible study. There's been very few times when I have found something completely new. Uh, So back to our text, uh, we're told that Amnon makes himself ill. And now what I find interesting about this description, according to the standards of 
today of our cultural climate pining away longing for someone is the standard that you have to hit to demonstrate that you are truly in love with someone if you're really going to make yourself ill from desire then this has to be true love i mean you know my kids were teenagers when the twilight series came out uh i suffered through all of those uh we talked about them and the, the creepy stalker behavior and how many of our romance novels, our movies, our TV shows are about how miserable one person is because they love another person so much. So by this standard, Amnon's love is authentic. It's true. And he should be able to live that truth. I think I'm making my point. But anyway. Uh, there is a book called The Ethics of the Father or The Wisdoms of the Fathers. Um, also, The Chapters of the Fathers. It's, it's a, a very valued Hebrew commentary on scripture. And uh, they actually have a quote concerning this, and I thought it was just appropriate, so I'm going to read it. It says, All love that depends on something. When the thing ceases, the love ceases. Not all love that does, and all love that does not depend on anything will never cease. What is an example of love that depends on something? Such was the love of Amnon for Tamar. What is an example of love that did not depend on anything? Such was the love of David and Jonathan. So, if love has to have certain standards in order to be experienced, when you take those standards away, when you take those crutches away, then this love dissipates mm. according to the wisdom of our fathers. Now, what was Amnon's standard? He saw her. She was beautiful. He didn't think he could get to her. This is the standard of his love. And when those things are removed, then the love ceases. So we need to remember that one of the important parts that's going to come out later in the story Tamar is one of the king's virgin's daughters. Uh, she would have been highly supervised. Now, this isn't an indictment or any kind of concern, or, you know, as far as we know, wasn't any kind of commentary about concerns for her behavior and what she might do. But as the king's daughter, she was vulnerable. She was a target. She could have been, um, you know, enemies could have tried to kidnap her for a ransom. Well, yeah, I mean, they we, could have... we still assign secret service agents to the president's children. I mean, that's just pretty much kind of how it goes. Very concise. I like that. So because, yeah, I mean, it's the, that's the thing. You, you protect what's valuable. And the, the family of any national leader is valuable. So um, also the, the flip side of that is that in protecting her virginity, David is making sure she has the highest value in political marriages. And we have to remember, at this day and time, these marriages were were very important. That they they were what cemented those those treaties and those allies that they were able to come together and go. Hey, you've got a member of my family in your house, and I have a member of your family and mine. So we don't attack each other, so that these members of our family that we do love don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. and, and it's it's just very strategic. 
And we are seeing, I think it's really interesting right now. Uh, I don't follow it super closely, but it's kind of hard to miss a, like a lot of the scuttlebutt about the royal marriages today. And, you know, all of the, the drama that goes around with, oh, we have a prince marrying someone who's not necessarily nobility or what have you. I, I don't know all the particulars. But what we're seeing is what happens when royalty is no longer held to the standard of this is who you marry and these are the reasons you marry. So there's a, there's a stability that is maintained within the royal families by making sure these are the kinds of marriages the children engage in. And so, uh, you know, there's I know there's been some talk about whether the, the British monarchy is even going to survive what's happening right now in their family because of these marriages that don't meet the standard. And so, um, it, you know, we can't discount the the validity of what was going on at this time. And we got to remember, this wasn't just something that was practiced in ancient times. This is something. That uh, I did watch The Crown on Netflix uh, that uh, talked about, you know, Queen Elizabeth and the things that she's endured. Uh, really interesting for an American who knows next to nothing. I don't know how historically accurate it is, but even her marriage was something that had to be uh, considered and the, the future of England had to be considered. And that wasn't that long ago. So, right. uh, you know, this isn't just people being arch archaic or or uh unenlightened this was still this is still a practice that uh is practiced today um and and note how ominous uh amnon's uh desire is i mean it, it's clearly signaled in this verse it's it's in that last phrase it seemed impossible for impossible for amnon to do anything to her and alter pretty much translates the same way so there there is this it's impossible for him to do anything to her that's not a good statement right, i don't care who you are language. isn't it so uh verse three but amnon had a friend whose name was jonah jonadab the son of uh, shimia david's brother and jonadab was a crafty man so we have a whole verse um introducing this guy named jonadab uh Shimia, uh, Shimia was David's older brother, so he's David's nephew. He's Amnon and Absalom's cousin. He's also Tamar's cousin. He's described as crafty. Um, I really, man, I wanted this word to be a room like it is in Genesis 3, where it describes the snake being the most subtle of all the creatures. It's not. It And... The problem with translating this as crafty versus what the the way we normally translate this verse is we lose some of the writer's commentary on what he thinks of certain people. The word here is hokma, which is wisdom. And so Jonadab is wise. He's not crafty. He's wise. Now, the the idea of wisdom um, you know, so often we kind of think of that as an attribute of a godly person because we think of, of Solomon and God's, uh, you know, what, what would you like? And Solomon having the right uh, answer. But the writer of Samuel doesn't really think much of wisdom itself. He actually sees wisdom and wise people as being kind of suspect because we've got to remember in, in the Hebrew culture, wisdom 
isn't just about, you know, making good or morally correct decisions. It's it has really very little to do with that. It has everything to do with what works. Mm. And, and that's what wisdom is about. It again. Not about ethics, not about morality. What will get the job done? And Jonadab is presented as someone who knows how to get the job done. Now, obviously, we understand as we go through the story that this wisdom is used for nefarious purposes. And so from that perspective, you know, crafty is kind of it's an okay uh, rendering. But we're going to lose some of that that flavor that gets us to to Solomon and the fact that we're supposed to kind of have our suspicions about Solomon himself. But we aren't there yet. Verse four. And he said to him, O son of the king. Excuse me. Why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So sometimes you really can't translate the Hebrew well into the English. That's just one of the, the problems you run into. The Hebrew has this repetitive uh, inclusion of these Alephs, uh, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's supposed to be read with this kind of gasping size. I mean, he, he's so distraught, he can barely speak. The writer's going to great pains to let you know Amnon's in miserable shape. And you should feel sorry for him because his health is in danger. The poor guy can't have the woman he wants. And Jonadab, his wise friend, sees the impact that it's having on him. And he he expresses sympathy and concern. And remember, the whole reason we're in this predicament to begin with is because of misplaced compassion that started with David way back in chapter 11. And, you know, and after all, I mean, his friend's a prince and a prince shouldn't have to do without the, the object of his desire. And so, plus, if the, you help the prince out later on, he'll probably reward you with something. That's a very good possibility, too. Verse 5. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. Now, this is our first indication that maybe that Amnon's not quite as ill as his speech led us to believe. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Now, in this moment, moment, Jonadab is becoming the catalyst for everything that's going to follow. Uh, without his advice, there's a possibility that Amnon's, you know, affections may have come to absolutely nothing. But he is really, despite the word not being there, he is that snake in the garden whispering the lies into Amnon's ears, saying, this is how you get what you want. This is what you need to do. And it really leaves the question for the reader is, what is Jonadab's intention here? Is he trying to just provide an opportunity for Amnon to, to have some time with Tamar so that he can woo her and, you know, seduce her and convince her to become his bride? Is, is that it? 
Or is rape really his intent? Is he really trying to set the stage so that Amnon can go that far? And, you know, if Jenadab had been a good friend, a, a, a true loving friend, and not just a wise friend, he would have said, dude, what you're saying here shows me you're wrong, you're messed up, you need help, let's get this right, because your affections should not be focused on someone who is completely forbidden to you, according to the Torah. Right. Someone you should never have even thought of that way. Instead, he says, you want it, you're the prince, let me help you get it. This is not a good friend. This is, uh, you know, to use a, a, a an example that we can think of today. If you've got a friend who is a drug ad- addict, you don't take them to their dealer. You know, you don't you don't buy booze for the alcoholic. You you don't enable this kind of behavior. Right. You you and you know, even if it's not so, like an addiction thing, when your friend wants something that's contrary to the word of God, you don't pat them on the head and say, "It's okay. God loves you enough to want you to be happy." You tell them this is against God's word. You shouldn't injure the relationship like this. You need to bring your heart and your mind and your your desires into alignment with him. That's the work of the Christian today. It's not a salvation thing. That's that's different. But when you are truly in a relationship with God that is a, a saving salvation, our desire should be in to be in alignment with God. So, um Jonadab, he encourages Amnon to to nurture the sinful desire. And, you know, the thing is that there's really this this really dark symmetry because Jonadab's wisdom matches Amnon's desire. And they have found each other in a relationship that's actually more meaningful than the, the relationship Amnon wishes to have with Tamar. So, of course, Amnon listens to Jonadab's advice because it's what he wants to hear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's like all of us. I mean, we all know which friend we can tell li- our life story to to hear what we want to hear. And he, this is uh, something we need to be on guard against. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We, we, we need friends who will wound us when it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. And not to run away from that. So, and this may be why Solomon could write some of those great proverbs, because he understood where, you know, what seemed to be kindness had actually led people in his family astray and led to some really horrible consequences. Right. So, verse six, uh, Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Okay. I don't care how sick you are. I'm never feeding you. Okay. Just, just, you know, that's just weird. David is like in weird denial mode here. Why is he not hearing what's going on here? Um, and I realize sick people make weird requests. I take care of a lot of sick people. They, they ask for strange things. And most of the time you just go along with it because if someone's not feeling good, you, you, you do what makes them feel better. But when you read this in the Hebrew, that's when it gets really creepy. 
because David should have picked up on what he's saying. Now, Jonadab, uh, Jonadab has had said to Amnon, have her make lechem. This is the word for bread. This is, you know, the, the, the house of bread. It, it's not a word. It's not the word that Amnon uses. Amnon asks for labab. Labab is a heart-shaped bread. It's, a, it's, it's not a just bread. It, it's, it's a heart-shaped dumpling. Uh, the word labab, it, we find it in Song of Songs, uh, verse four, nine, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. And uh, this is where the, the writer of the Song of Songs says that uh, she's captivated his labab, his heart. Uh, Bergen suggests that these are heart-shaped dumplings meant for the purpose of strengthening the heart, uh, that they might have uh, contained some kind of healing herbs and were used for, for health. But Alter notes that this word labab is specifically used to denote sexual arousal. It, it's not an innocuous word. It's not a benign word. Uh, so either David's not picking up on the language or he's being lulled into some kind of, of false security by the my sister language. Uh, but David, he he says, actually, when he talks to, to Tamar or sends for Tamar, he says, have her come make food. He, he doesn't even use the same word when he, he gives her the, the command. But the writer doesn't want you to miss what Amnon's saying. Amnon says it twice in the Hebrew that he wants these heart-shaped cakes. Uh, Tamar, when it, she makes it, it says twice she makes these heart-shaped cakes. So verse 7, And then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So totally different words. So like I said, either David's in denial or he he's just missing... He, things that um, he should be picking up on. Now, two things to note, David sent home for Tamar. So obviously she is living in his house, in David's house. Tamar is acting in obedience to her father. She's there because David sent for her and put her in this situation. So for the second time in the book of Samuel, we have this perfect example of why obedience does not protect women from violence. Anybody who says that obedience will protect women from violence has already added themselves as someone who has not bothered to study what the scripture says about sexual violence. So as far as I'm concerned, they don't need to be listened to. That's, that's just where I'm at. Because Tamar does not go out like Dina or like Leah. She's Gone from her father's home to her brother's home at her father, the king's command. So I don't know how much clearer the, the Bible can make it that it was in the middle of obedience that Bathsheba was violated, and it's going to be in the middle of obedience that Tamar's attacked. So the other thing to note is that David is unwittingly paralleling Uriah. Because just like Uriah carried his own death sentence, now it's David's own words. His message is going to be what leads to his daughter's um, tragedy. So, verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took the dough, kneaded it, and made the cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. You notice how many times we've got the word sight here? We, we want to 
He wants to see it. He's looking at her. He, he, we know what's going to happen because we know the background. We've talked about that so many times on, on this show that seeing and, and desire and taking, they all go together. And this is why we guard our eyes. So she's in the middle of doing exactly what her father had asked her to do. Verse 9, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, and he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Now, the last time we heard this, this command used was back in Genesis 45.1. And this is when Joseph's brothers had come to Egypt, and they were pleading for the release of Benjamin. And Joseph, you know, he can no longer control himself, and he breaks down, and he, he sends the servants away. And the idea there that when he revealed who he was, he was reuniting with his family. He was reestablishing that relationship. When Amnon sends the servants away, it's so he can reveal his true identity. Absolutely. Question. Oh, but, go, ahead. Yeah. go ahead and finish that. Uh, well, well, he reveals his true identity, but in doing so, he breaks the relationship with his family. And he's actually cut off from relationship with his brothers and his sisters. So um, that we see this full reversal because the point is where Joseph's story kind of ends as far as with his time in Egypt and being reunited with family. That's where Tamar and Amnon's story begins. And we're going to see that continue throughout the story where the writer and Samuel actually takes Joseph's story and turns it on its head within this particular account. And um, there's just lots of connections and it's a lot of fun. So, well, I say a lot of fun. You've you got to find a different word. I do. You say, you say do. a lot of things are fun that are definitely not fun. And I know you're well, probably using it. I know you're using it ironically. <laughs> I know you're using it ironically, but I'm just got to make sure that translates. The, the the linguistics are fun for me, and not what we're talking about, but how he uses the stories and incorporates it. It's smart, and it's it's intriguing that he's able to do this. So you had a thought. Oh, I had a thought. The other thing that this reminds me of is is Ehud and Eglon. Um, you talking about sending people away? Uh, oh, I hadn't thought about because, that because, and then we um, then we have acts of violence that are being perpetrated in secret that have, you know, been... Mm -hmm. So I don't know if... Because I, I was wondering, you said the last time we heard this was in Genesis, I was wondering if it was about the specific command and the verbiage used, or if there was something different, or if maybe you've just overlooked that. I, I'm curious on that one. It, it was... It's a direct quote from Genesis, and I am... Uh, I was looking to see if it said again. It says he sent him away. Okay, so we have, so basically we have, within Genesis, we have the command given by Potiphar's wife to send the servants away. And it's, it's a direct quote. Um, in Judges, it's not presented as a quote. We're told that it happens, mm -hmm. but it's not given as a command coming out of uh, Eglon's mouth. Okay, so it's more so, due to specific verbiage rather than just the act. Yeah, but I, there's definitely the themes there. But this is the, that's a good point, and we, we should mention that this is the reason why word studies can lead you astray. Because mm 
because if you're just looking at, at a specific word, Heiser says this all the time, uh, you know, you've got to be looking for the themes. And so this is one time that, yeah, absolutely. So now we got 10 stories that the writer <laughs> is building right. on. And so, uh, yeah, you definitely have, um, you've got all of the things in place that should make you cringe for what's going to happen next. And that, I think that's the point of what's being being shown to us in this passage. David shouldn't have missed it. David should have picked up right away. There is something wrong in the story. Something's happening that shouldn't be happening. Why is David being so dense here? Right. And so that, that's, that's the setup. And that, that's the thing. We aren't even to the to the meat of the story, if you will. It, it we have this is all introduction, because the, the story doesn't really take off until almost the end of the sec. Well, the second half of the chapter, and that's when our real our our, our true um, main character steps into the stage and, and begins to act. Yeah. So we've we've got this set up, and um, we've got some other things that we're going to go into, but I. I think we're going to um put a semicolon there because i i'm seeing we're coming up on time and uh i don't want to lose the continuity with what comes next okay well that sounds yeah seems like a good place to break and uh, you're right we are uh, coming up right on time so um hey everyone uh, thanks for joining us if you want to be part of the conversation hit us up raven creek sc on all the social media ravencreeksc.com is the website where you can find this shows show notes uh that sentence got away from me um and then also <laughs> other shows uh changed my mind with luke t harrington commentarians joe zaragoza tending our nets with joshua sherman and answers to giant questions with tim steadman and chris bather look at that made it all the way through <laughs> so, um i think Next time, I'm just going to shorten it to you can find our show notes and other shows, and I might highlight one or two. <laughs> we're getting a, we're getting quite the list there to just recite every week. <laughs> we are well, and you never know what's going to show up next. I... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, there there may or may not be other projects in the work, so we'll we'll let you true. figure that out. Anyhow, uh, yeah, but come back next week and we'll continue this gruesome story. So have a good week. Right. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.